Welcome to the Diversity and Inclusion on Air podcast. This podcast is a program of the Association of American Veterinary Medical Colleges Diversity Matters Initiative. The podcast explores various issues related to diversity and inclusion in the veterinary profession and provides the AAVMC an opportunity to offer ongoing diversity programming to our member institutions as well as the broader veterinary profession. My name is Dr. Lisa Greenhelm, the Senior Director for Institutional Research and Diversity at AAVMC. I am delighted to do this live show. This is our last live show for 2018, and I'm very excited. This show is a follow-up to our recent show that we released on intersectionality, and it focuses on men of color or minority men in veterinary medicine. I wanted to do this show because, as we all know, the numbers of individuals who identify as male continues to fall in the profession. And while we often talk about how startling those numbers are, like, for example, less than 20% of currently attending vet school students in the U.S. are male or identify as male. We rarely segment that data to really look kind of below those numbers, kind of peel back the layer and see what's going on. The reality is that minority men or men of color in veterinary medicine in the schools right now make up three and a half percent of all veterinary students. And just to keep in mind, there are more than 13,000 vet students in the U.S., and then those numbers are dropping of <laughs> men of color. So while we are increasing overall racial and ethnic diversity in the profession, we're really still tr- struggling to attract the intersectional diversity that we're really kind of hoping for when it comes to gender, the intersection of gender, race, and ethnicity. So we're going to talk about that today. And I'm very, very excited to welcome my guest on this episode of Diversity and Inclusion on Air. I am joined by Drs. Michael Bailey. Dr. Steve Perry and Dr. Aubrey Lavizzo. Did I pronounce that? Yeah, it's yeah, that's correct. Thank you. Are you sure? Correct me. It's Lavizzo Lavizzo. I had a large family. Half of them were Lavizos, the other half Lavizos. So you can't go wrong. All right. And so, and then we're hoping that um, we will have a student join us in a bit to talk about his experiences at University of Florida. So I'm going to turn it over to my guest for a moment to kind of give a little introduction of yourselves. I'm going to start with, I'm going to go in alpha order. Dr. Bailey, why don't you give us a little, little bit about who you are? Oh, even in school, first in line. (laughs) (laughs) Hello. Um, Dr. Michael Bailey. I am a veterinary radiologist, which means that after veterinary school, I went through a significant additional number of years to be an advanced practitioner. I have been a tenured faculty at major uh, research universities, as well as uh, have had a congressional fellowship on Capitol Hill. And I currently work for corporate medicine, which means that I work for one of these big corporations that is involved in veterinary medicine. I am a Tuskegee University veterinary graduate, very proud of it. I have did my advanced work at Michigan State, so both of them were very, very helpful. So you mentioned Michigan State, so next in alpha order is Dr. Carey. So why don't you tell us about yourself? Good evening. My name is Steve Carey. I am currently a small animal uh, veterinary internist, faculty at Michigan State University, I got my Doctor of Veterinary Medicine from the University of Wisconsin in 2000. And then my entire career as a veterinarian has been spent at Michigan State University. I matched here for an internship for my residency in internal medicine. I did a PhD and a fellowship after that. And then I've been on the faculty here 
since about 2006. So I've, I've spent my entire career as a veterinarian uh, at Michigan State University, as I'm sure will come up a little bit later on. Uh, MSU and the University of Wisconsin have both been very instrumental in my development as a veterinarian. And, and my experience here at State has been largely the reason I've stayed in academic medicine. Great. We can't wait to hear more about that. And Dr. Bavizo Bavaza. I am also a Tuskegee graduate, uh, Dr. Bailey. I finished in 1970 and went into practice almost immediately. Ended up in Denver, Colorado, where I practiced for over 40 years and retired a few years ago and sold my practice actually a few months ago. I've been, I've been active in the local association. I am most proud of the fact that I, I've served on the Colorado State University College of Veterinary Medicine and Biomedical Sciences, and I need to get a breath in between there <laughs> for, for uh, 11 years now, and especially proud of my service on the Vet Prep Committee, which is a committee that looks at disadvantaged students and offers opportunities for for a vet school to those students who have disadvantages and really serves a fills a, a large need, of course, in in the profession for underrepresented populations. All right. Well, thank you. Welcome all. We've got a number of institutions kind of represented um, directly or indirectly. So welcome. So why don't we dive on in? So I'm going to ask our two more seasoned. <laughs> professionals who have kind of watched the profession undergo a lot of changes, particularly a major gender shift kind of during your career. What's that gender shift kind of been like? I mean, I guess it was a little bit different when you were in veterinary school. Currently, like I said, there are almost 81% of veterinary students are women. Well, it's payback. (laughs) I mean, veterinary school for the longest time and I'm not talking about Tuskegee, I'm talking about other veterinary schools, were predominantly, if not exclusively male, I'm going to say for running close to 100 years. Tuskegee, remember though, 1945, its first class graduated five people, and one of them was a woman, which means that 20% of the class was female. I have seen a change in when I was teaching at one of the major research institutions, I was there when the restrooms were swapped between male and female because, of course, the male restroom was bigger. So it was interesting when one summer they went in there and made a swap so that the women had access to the larger restroom. <laughs> so you look at what things happen. Having women in the profession has been nothing but a plus because there's always a perspective you need to take when, and when you have diversity, you have a diverse perspective. However, no profession is healthy when it is nearly exclusively one gender or one race because you lose that diversity. Aubrey? I'll chime in as a Tuskegee grad and echoing what you said, uh, Dr. Bailey, when I was, when I was in, uh, started off in Tuskegee, our class And of course, in those days, the classes were very small. Our class was actually 20% female, which was surprising to all of us. But really, Tuskegee was way ahead of the trend, even back then, as far as admitting women. And I'll share something else, which I'm actually very proud of, 
in my senior year at Tuskegee in 1970. Oh, I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> <laughs> the, the Large Animal Clinic Award was given to a woman. And the Small Animal Clinic Award was given to a woman. So we guys were shut out completely, which was okay. Wow. Wow. <clears throat> so, so Steve, has what do you think about this? So you've come up kind of in an era after the shift, right? Certainly wasn't quite as pronounced as it is now, but it was getting there. <laughs> well, it, it, it was not as pronounced as it is now. I, I graduated, I matriculated in 1996, Oh, you're a baby. University of Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. I am a baby. Um, <laughs> there were 13 men in my class of 84 that matriculated, 12 men uh, that actually finished out of, out of about 72. So it wasn't quite as skewed as it is now in some institutions, but it was still very heavily female. And I have to confess, I, veterinary medicine was a, a late decision for me. I, I grew up as a child and then went through about three quarters of my undergrad thinking I was going into human medicine and had a a magnificent undergrad advisor who talked to me about what I liked about human medicine and, and, and to consider veterinary medicine for the first time. So I entered veterinary medicine really without a lot of research and understanding of what the profession was like and didn't notice until maybe halfway through my first year that I was, I certainly noticed the, the, the lack of color at the time, but I really didn't notice the, the lack of men until about halfway through the first year, and just because I really wasn't expecting it. But I'll be honest with you, it really didn't become overtly apparent to me until I was on the other side and became faculty at Michigan State. And that's when it became very, very clear that I, as a black male, was largely responsible for the instruction of very large classroom of, of predominantly white females. And that was, that, that's when it was really striking to me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So, you know, as you mentioned, I mean, yeah, the numbers, the numbers have been consistently con- going down. And when we look very specifically at African-American men, certainly that's not, I don't want to limit our conversation just to that, but certainly as far as I know, each of you identify that way. But, but for many, many years, there were when I first started at AAVMC, there were less than 50 in vet school in the country, mm-hmm. African-American men. And mm-hmm. then half of them, we're at Tuskegee, which yep. meant that like there were onesies and twosies and some schools that just didn't have anyone, right? right. Now we are less than 100, which is certainly better, but 2018 and less than 100 African-American men is still a really low, low number. So, so Steve, I kind of want to go a little bit deeper with you now that you're a faculty member and you kind of see this. Is this something, you know, one of my questions is, is this something that you think much about and, and, and kind of what is that, what does that thought process look like? What, how, what do you think about it other than, wow, this is, <laughs> well, I, I, <laughs> I, don't look like me. <laughs> I, I, I think about it quite, quite, quite often. I think about it when, when I'm lecturing to a group, when I'm advising a group, I'm, I, I think about it largely from the perspective of, of, you know, what is it about veterinary medicine now and over the past 30 years, really, that has led to men in general and African-American men specifically not not choosing this as a career path. And so I, I think about it from the perspective of a faculty member, but I also think about it because I'm on the admissions committee here and have been for several years with with Dr. Hilda uh, Maya Abreu, 
who's doing a wonderful job at increasing inclusion and diversity here at Michigan State. But but I think about it from the perspective of, of a faculty member in, in terms of what, what has happened to the profession or what has happened to undergraduate admissions and advising that is leading to so many people of color, but especially African-American men, not considering this as a profession. And I also think of it now as a member of the admissions committee about, is there something in the admissions process or the selection process? Are, are those people out there that are interested in veterinary medicine, but is there something about the admissions process or the recruitment process that that's really letting them down? So both, both what's happened to the profession, but also what's happened to academic admissions in general and what kind of things might we need to do a little bit differently to reach out to, to that population and to ensure that they're given access to, to this type of education. So, Aubrey, you mentioned during the, the intro that you have been working with CSU for a number of years on admissions. And CSU is pretty well known that that institution has a long history of practicing holistic admissions, meaning they look very broadly, not only kind of at what, whether or not an applicant can handle the rigor of the DVM program, but also kind of what is it that they're bringing or able to bring to not only kind of the academic environment, but the profession as a whole. What is your experience kind of listening to, to Steve talk about his experience at Michigan State? What are you seeing or what have you seen and, and kind of are you seeing similar trends? Yeah, I guess. But my experience here in Colorado, you have to understand Colorado is a little bit different. Now, I I have to say, I have to give credit to Dr. Lance Perriman, who was a dean of the Veterinary College when I came on board on the admissions committee. And the program that he started was the vet prep program. And, and I'm happy to serve under Dr. Mark Stetter, too, who has not only continued that, but actually increased the efforts in in, in in uh, diversity and inclusion, not only for the veterinary college, but for the College of of Biomedical Sciences as well. He's established a diversity and inclusion committee. And our committee has been meeting now for a year and a half. And we're looking at, and Lisa and I have actually had a conversation about this, about the climate of the programs, uh, as well as where we find those students. Now here in Colorado, we're not gonna find that many African-American males that are interested. I mean, the, the population of African-American men is less than, well, the population of African-Americans in Denver is less than 10%. And, and statewide, I really don't know, it's probably 5% total. So we, we just don't have that pool. Yet the college, the, the CSU College of Veterinary Medicine is really doing a lot of things to increase that through that holistic process. And there are some other things that would be a longer story, but I, I'm very proud of what we've done in Colorado, what Dean Stetter has done and, and improved on. So, you know, there are a lot of factors here. Personally, I feel that really I'm not so sure if the resources, if it's a matter of resources or if it's a matter of how shall I phrase it? I really think as African-American veterinarians, if we feel the profession is serving a need, then perhaps it's our role to reach out to these students and in more mentoring. It's a complex issue, of course, but I really think that that's part of the issue is we really are doing enough to promote the profession. I do have concerns about certainly the debt load. Uh, I also have concern, concerns about the direction of 
certainly private practice where that's going if there are opportunities. I have four African-American sons who did not want to go to veterinary school. And honestly, in large part, because the dad really didn't encourage them because I worked very hard. It was very difficult. And and quite honestly, in private practice in those days, and and it continues, there really wasn't, I didn't make a lot of money. Uh, It was a struggle. But yet, I think the profession is great. I think opportunities now for us as African-American men lie in areas other than private practice, and that's public health, certainly for one thing. When, when we enter this profession, we become leaders, or when we graduate from veterinary schools, we become leaders in the community, and we're looked up to. And what's happened, thanks to this profession, I have a level of respect in my community now that I would not have had otherwise. And I think there's an opportunity, there have been opportunities for me now to reach out to other underrepresented populations, including African-Americans, Latino-Americans, Asian-Americans, and talk about opportunities in the profession other than private practice. It's a long story, I guess, to say that I do, I'm very high on a profession, I'm very high on opportunities in the profession, but just not in the traditional areas that we've always looked at. So that's a great segue when we're talking about kind of non kind of small animal practice settings. Michael? Very good setup there. (laughs) There's a couple of things that need to be looked at, first of all. The number of men in the profession has dropped precipitously. So to say that we are a profession that was already underrepresented and now that we see that men, no matter what the distinction is, as a profession, we are not attracting men. And I think it goes to what was just mentioned the fact that we are seen as an old-fashioned or obsolete profession in many respects. We're not, but that's the way we're seen. And what do I mean by that? We vaccinate dogs and cats. We take care of some cattle and we uh, float the teeth on horses. That's what people think of. We do more than that. If it wasn't for veterinarians, this world would not have the quality of health that it has today, but we don't sell that. Plus the fact medicine has grown beyond what what I was taught in veterinary school. What do I mean by that? When I was in veterinary school, I was taught, okay, that there was a thing called a genome, but didn't go much beyond that. Now we can have genomes sequenced in a matter of hours. Artificial intelligence was Robbie the robot. Now artificial intelligence is in everything we do. If you own a telephone, if you own a TV, we're working with artificial intelligence. Veterinary medicine needs us. In fact, I, as a veterinary radiologist, work with artificial intelligence every day, and I need people to develop this. So we need to, first of all, make sure that all the populations that we're trying to reach realize that veterinary medicine, yes, we do vaccinate dogs and cats because it is the vaccination of dogs and cats that has, I wish I could say eradicated, but significantly reduced the incidence of human rabies in the country and the world. But at the same time, it's development of things like artificial intelligence, which is going to move medicine forward. And if you look at the lot of research that's on my CV, it's actually done in human medicine. Why am I saying that? Because veterinarians contribute to human medicine. One Health 
depends on veterinarians. But why am I going through all this? Because we are horrible salespeople. We're not selling to people what it is we do. Then when it comes down to the minority populations, the underrepresented populations, well, black men, and yes, it's going to be this similar in other minority populations, but I'm going to speak about black men, earn 80% on the dollar as white men in any profession, not just veterinary medicine. So if you are already looking at a profession where it costs you a hundred plus thousand dollars to get an education and you're only going to earn 80% on the dollar, why bother? You can go and do something with a four-year degree and there are professions you can go in with a four-year degree, not have the debt load. So when you look at 20 years out, you're in the same place or maybe better off without the an extra academic rigor you might have had to go to veterinary school or in my case, to go and be, uh, become board certified. So we are not setting up the institutions to a way where it's attractive for even for many people, much less the male to want to enter. And if we look at the programs like the inclusive programs at Colorado and Purdue's doing a wonderful job, I give them credit. But those programs were established at Tuskegee, first of all. And why am I saying that? It's because the fact Tuskegee as a school was established in 1945. First graduating class five already said that. But if you realize that 70% of the black veterinarians came from Tuskegee, that means just over the time between 1945 to now, we have not had a very large period of time in order to get a critical mass of black veterinarians. And now if we talk about males, they're losing interest in the profession. So we haven't done anything to keep them interested considering the numbers are already low. Yeah. We want them to be ambassadors. We don't have a whole lot of ambassadors. So what do we do about that? <laughs> Because I think that part of it is the selling part, right? And and certainly I've been hanging around for a really long time. And I, I've told people that I think that this is, I've worked with other health professions. This is the coolest one. When I do recruiting, I hardly ever ask, hey, do you want to be a veterinarian? I usually ask people, well, what do you want to do? And then I tell them how veterinary medicine can get them there. But I agree with you that there are definitely some challenges around um, how the profession. What do engineering schools do when they want to attract people into the STEM programs and the STEM and the STEAM programs? They go out there with robotics. Yeah. What kid is not interested in a robot? They go out there with a solar powered car. What kid is not interested in seeing how they can have a car drive and not have to use fossil fuel? And, you know, similar type thing. Yeah. Veterinary medicine needs to be just as aggressive in marketing programs. And what is it we can offer them? I mean, we can go out there and say, OK, do you want to make it so maybe you can make your dog talk to you so you understand what's happening? Those kind of things. Yeah. So, Steve, you know, when you were telling your story about kind of coming to the profession late, it's actually the data show that it's it's not unusual for young men in general to come to the profession later than their female counterparts. You know, are, this is one thing I haven't taken a look at is whether or not, um, even within our student groups, whether or not our, our male students are maybe a little, a year or two older. I haven't kind of broken out that data, but kind of what are you seeing in terms of, you know, how do you, how do you sell this to, you know, undergrads at Michigan State? Well, I, 
I, I really think it's, it's a matter of Dr. Bailey hit the nail on the head. It's a matter of not just creating awareness about A, veterinary medicine exists, and B, there's a lot of very interesting things you can do in veterinary medicine, but really to, to make it exciting for them. I, I find that a lot of people believe that veterinary medicine is what they see on reality TV shows uh, with Dr. Pohl here in Michigan and <laughs> and then the reality vet and and that they're that they're going around doing farm calls and that they're in small animal practice and and really veterinarians are not seen outside of that window. And and as he alluded to, there there are so many other things that you can do with the VMD or, or, or DVM degree. And I and I really just don't believe that that men in general have exposure to veterinary medicine outside of that. And honestly, don't believe that for the most part, women do either. I think an important difference, and I don't have a whole lot of data to back this up, is that is that many women come into veterinary medicine because that appeals to them. That, that idea of veterinary medicine appeals to them, and in many cases, it doesn't appeal to men. So we need to find the other components of veterinary medicine um, the biomedical research, the outreach, the the industry tie-ins, and the ability to to generate knowledge, public health, food safety, all of the other components, disease eradication, CDC, all the other things you can do with veterinary medicine outside of that fairly narrow perspective on it, that are the things that are going to bring people, things that bring people into graduate programs, things that bring people into human medicine, uh, that bring people into engineering schools. We have, like, as you said, we have access to all of those, that, all that potential within veterinary medicine, but we don't expose people to it at a right age. And so I, I again, did not even, I never considered veterinary medicine until my junior year of college when an undergraduate advisor actually sat down and had this conversation. What is it you like about human medicine? What drives you into that direction? And I don't think that conversation is happening enough among men in general and specifically uh, among African-American men. So one of the things that I do believe really needs to happen is that we, we veterinarians need to be in schools with these children at a very early age. We need to be in elementary schools. We need to be, we need to be the ones doing heart and lung dissections with Mm -hmm. the fourth grade students, not the MDs. They can be there too. That's fine. But it's the veterinarian who needs to be there and talking about comparative aspects. They can't talk about comparative medicine. I can bring in a sheep, pluck, uh, heart, lung, sorry, a horse one, a dog one, a cat one, and be able to show them the similarities and the differences and really give them that wow factor or that impact factor in fourth grade where they can hopefully have a positive experience with veterinary medicine, reiterate that when they're in high school, bring them into the veterinary hospital. One of, one of the great aspects of veterinary medicine is that we are not tied down by HIPAA. So I can bring a group of Boy Scouts or Girl Scout troop into the hospital. I can show them spays and neuters. I can have them right there at the table and really show them the meat and potatoes of what veterinary medicine is about. And I think that's the, those are the kind of things we need to be doing at a very early age so that they link those experiences to veterinary medicine and not necessarily just, just to human medicine. Because if that is implanted or imprinted in their brains earlier on, I think they're more and more likely to consider veterinary medicine as a possibility. 
So I want to take this time to shout out the Purdue University College of Veterinary Medicine and the program that they have called uh, Let's Roll that talks about kind of role modeling, particularly for very young kids. Um, there's certainly a diversity component. And I think now nearly half of the schools in the U.S. are participating in that grant program through Purdue to kind of really focus on increasing exposure to very young kids, probably like, I guess, uh, maybe K through three or four grades to really kind of show what works and what doesn't. There's been some really great uh, research that Dr. Sandy San Miguel at Purdue has been doing and publishing for the last few years. So that is certainly one example of a pretty successful program that is getting right into that kind of exposure and kind of connecting how cool veterinary medicine is. So, so one thing I kind of want to shift and talk about a little bit is maybe climate, culture and climate within the profession. So I've been around for more than a few years now, and I've seen a lot of changes just in, in my kind of <laughs> 20 years or so kind of hanging around. And this is an area for me of, of of inquiry and research over the last probably 10 years or so. And I'm kind of curious about what do you think in terms of climate, both from a male perspective and then from kind of race ethnicity perspective. And, and Aubrey, one of the things that struck me um, as we're thinking about even reaching out to undergraduate men of color, no shade to CSU. We know that they're really great folks, but we certainly also know that that last year was a pretty horrible event um, where two Native young men's students came to, to campus, to the undergrad campus to kind of, you know, just have an opportunity to look around. This was like a dream school, right? They drive seven hours only to kind of get the cops called. And so we have that kind of thing happening in society, but we also know that this schools, no matter where we are, kind of a little bit of a microcosm for, for some of this phenomenon. Sure. No, that was a very unfortunate incident, and it was not the College of Veterinary Medicine and Biomedical Sciences, as you said. But yet it still reflected on the college. That was addressed, and I, I can't give specifics, but uh, Dean Stetter did address that with the Diversity and Inclusion Committee, and it was discussed in committee meeting, uh, committee meetings. You know, that, that's one of the areas that we're looking at is the, the climate on that campus, and that's, one of the, that's a big focus of the Diversity and Inclusion Committee. So we're working on that. We have several programs that we're looking at now, um, so those things are changing, and it's just an unfortunate incident, and really there's nothing more I can say about that. So I'm kind of curious, though, about are we, are we really kind of cultivating climates on campus that can really support this not only kind of just success, but ultimate thriving of young men, of, young men in general, because since there's so few, and young men of color within our vet schools? I will say that we are trying to do so. Where, where, where we sit right now is I think we're trying to change the mechanisms of admissions to make the, to give access to those students who have the ability, have the desire to gain access to veterinary medical education who may not have had access with our previous admissions rubrics and admissions policies. We've recently done away with, with a GRE as a requirement. We have changed our, our protocols for, um, we've reinstituted the MMIs and, and interviews to really assess for social maturity and, and look for other factors that we think are going to be predictors of success rather than, than the, just the, the numerics. So I think we've, we've accomplished that. Where I, what I think we still need to figure out is 
is have we truly created an environment that's going to be nurturing to them? And I, we're, we're still, we're three years into this new, uh, two years into this new admissions policy. So I think we still need to figure out if we've been successful in creating the the support environment in the college campus, as well as in the, the university campus to be able to, to provide these students what they're going to need to feel socially comfortable as well as academically prepared. So I, I think the effort is there. I don't know that we've truly accomplished it yet, but it clearly is something that's going to need to happen. At the undergraduate level, there are programs that are looking to try to create, I guess for lack of a better term, communities within communities. So so trying to identify people uh, with certain degrees of similar, uh, you know, historical, cultural, ethnic similarities to try to bring them together across across campus so that even if it can't be done in veterinary medicine, we have access to other people uh, with similar experiences in the university setting and trying to create these communities across colleges within the university setting. So I, I'm, I'm not sure if we're going to be successful in that yet, but I do know that it's a component of what we're trying to accomplish here. Yeah, thanks. So Michael, you and I were at a meeting about a month ago it's been that long already. <laughs> I think it's been, has it been that long? Almost a month. It was yeah. almost a month, I think, uh, this week. It's about a month ago. We were at the Econ Summit. And I've been to every Econ Summit. I'm usually a speaker. And shout out to my, my Econ friends over at AVMA. It's always a good time. But I have to say, and I'm used to being in, in spaces where kind of a lonely only, but it was pretty pretty white <laughs> this year at the Econ Summit. And you got up and you had some really um, important things to say. And, and I think that it also not only speaks to the lack of diversity, but, but also a little bit of that, that climate issue. You want to? Yeah, the first thing I should probably say, and my colleagues on the board may or may not be happy to hear me say it, I am a member of the board of directors of the American Veterinary Medical Association. As old as the association is, whereas I am not the first Tuskegee grad to be on the board, I am the first African-American Tuskegee grad to be on the board. And I, this is my third year going to the Econ Summit. And for as much as it is trying to talk about how great we are, we have a long way to go. And what do I mean by a long way to go? Just some of the research that was presented was very monolithic in its presentation. And when they went and talked about where they did their research at and the fact that they were only able to really talk to one segment of the community, I'm talking about Caucasian, they went to a city that is probably one of the largest cities in America with African-American veterinarians, and they did not interview any. So in other words, Research is still being done in a way that even when you have good sampling to obtain the sampling that does not fit the uh, homogenous uh, concept is not taken advantage of. Yeah. So we have not learned from our many mistakes, such as the Tuskegee experiment mm -hmm. and other things that, you know, you need to have quality research whenever you do anything. Quality research. Do not leave people out. And I was tenured faculty. I keep on saying a major research institution. I'll leave it that way. I can tell you, having been a faculty member at this major research 
institution, I managed to become tenured faculty despite my fellow faculty members. So I did a whole lot of quality research despite my fellow faculty members. Now, I'm also going to say that's a few few years ago now. So knowing the people that are there now, I'm going to give them credit and say that I'm assuming that they have changed, but they haven't changed that much. <laughs> so we have a lot of things we need to do at our universities. And Tuskegee, I keep on coming back to Tuskegee. Why? Because Tuskegee needs to be given credit. Yeah. Tuskegee is a private school. It is an underfunded school. It is trying to do a whole lot with a little. And a lot of folks, I think, feel, well, they're thriving. No, they're surviving. But we need to support institutions like Tuskegee because this is where we're going to get our next leaders from in many respects. I'm not saying that Michigan State, Michigan State allowed me to get board certified. So I have nothing but good things to say about Michigan State. I'm a Rutgers University graduate, undergrad. But you know, when I was a student at Rutgers University, I saw a police car pull up in front of me and a police car pulling back of me. And they came up to me and asked me, why was I running? I was jogging on my campus. <laughs> so those kind of things still happen. We need to have sensitivity if we wanted to attract people to these locations. Mm -hmm. So I, I can go into a lot more. You heard me say a whole lot more at the economic summit, but I'm still going to go back to if young black men are not stupid, they are very smart. And they're going to look and see what is going to give them the best opportunity for them to develop. And veterinary medicine may not be that choice now. I had the opportunity to go to medical school or veterinary school and chose veterinary school. Today, I don't know if I would make that choice, at least not if I was thinking about economics. Mm. So we have to think about if we've made this so expensive, are we making it so expensive? And is that part of what is reducing the population that's attracted no matter what that population is. Did I answer your question? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> She's gotten to know me very quickly. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting, and I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned the, the tenure and promotion piece, too, because this is something that we spend a lot of time talking about culture and climate for students, I mean, we don't necessarily spend as much time talking about it for faculty. Um, I've got some, some, certainly some new data on that. But one of the things just in general with, that we know with, with faculty of color in general is that oftentimes you kind of, you get that assistant professorship, you come in, the next thing you know, there's diversity tax. And for folks that don't know what the diversity tax is, well, you need, there's like 15 diversity committees. <laughs> and you're in all of them. <laughs> and you're in all of them yep. because it's just you. <laughs> and they got to send someone, all right? Mm -hmm. And so it then becomes your job to do that. And, but you're not kind of, other things aren't taken off of the plate because you're still expected to do some of these other things. But sometimes the those diversity programs and committees and activities are not necessarily included in your service or your, you know, your dossier for tenure and promotion. And so that's why we call it a tax, because it's kind of on top of everything else. Here's, your, you know, that that's that first cut. So that's certainly something that, you know, we see in higher ed in general. We see it also in corporate culture, where we have more diversity and inclusion programs. And you get that new hire, you're onboarding, and you're like, great. Here we go. 
now we've got this other program. Can you also do that beyond the nine to five or, you know, eight to five or eight to six or whatever those hours are? So any comments on that? You know, as as sort of junior to mid-career faculty, I'll I'll say that that is 100%, 100% true. And one of the one of the reasons that I believe it happens is because I didn't have a Dr. Bailey or a Dr. Lavazzo available to me when I was junior faculty to warn me about that. So I came in as junior faculty, very enthusiastic, just got my PhD and fellowship and board certification. I was ready to roll and saw it almost as an honor to serve on all these committees. And there was no one that my, my advisor, I have a, a, a faculty mentor in the department and a mentorship committee. And of course there's one white male and two white females on that committee. And none of them are, are conversational about this diversity tax. So none of them could really warn me about it. So I dive in and then by the time you realize it, it's too late. So one of the big problems with faculty is that there's so few of us And so few of us to provide mentorship, really meaningful mentorship to those of us like myself who are coming into the profession. It basically just perpetuates itself. Yeah. Right. And then private practice has got to be tough at times. So here's a person who spent, how many years were you in private practice? Over 40 years, I just sold the practice and retired a few years ago, but just sold it a few months ago, but yeah, I was in practice for 45 years, I think. Yeah. So you see private practices know you develop a clientele who's comfortable with you, but when you have that new client, I can tell you from when I was a practicing radiologist that would be in the exam room, because I now do a lot of my work telemedicine, I'm administrative now, I would have clients come into my room and you would see the eyes of the kids and the parents go wide because they saw I was black. <laughs> and then what you're doing over the next half an hour or so, and they, they can run on to an hour as a specialist in the exam room with them. By the end, they were more than very comfortable with you. But going in, you have to sell yourself as well as what you're doing for their pet. Sure. So, yeah. And so I give anybody in private practice a lot of credit because they have to do that day in and day out their entire career. I mean, and there's the casualness that kind of takes place. I didn't know that several years ago when we at AAVMC awarded Dr. Tracy Hanner from North Carolina State A&T, he's retired now, but we awarded him our Iverson Bell Award in honor of his long work around diversity and inclusion in the profession. And he kind of chatted about his own career, 1985 graduate of North Carolina State University, the first African-American male, 1985, to graduate from that, that school. And he was talking about how many times he'd kind of gone into the exam room and you know, someone said, my, my dog doesn't like black people. I'm going to be kind of short here because I'm it, you know? And so there's, there's this kind of casualness that you have to kind of build that rapport and, and sell it. You know, that's, that happened to me so many times I've forgotten that and other things too. And you just kind of, it rolls off your back after a while. You know, I, I, I do have to say, though, when I moved to Colorado in 1970 into the veterinary community where, and I think I was maybe at that time the only 
practicing African-American veterinarian in the whole state. There were a couple of other Tuskegee grads uh, who lived in the Denver area who were in public health, actually a meat inspection, it was called then. Uh, but I was the only one. I'm, I have to say, and I really have to say, I'm, uh, it's being in this state was, it was an experience I didn't expect because I was well-received by the veterinary community. I was mentored by veterinarians who had been here for years and really taken under their wings. And honestly, I have to say, if it hadn't been for the Caucasian veterinarians who embraced me in this city, then I probably would not have succeeded at all. Right. So I think I need to say that too, because yeah. uh, I do owe a great deal of credit to, and there were a number, of, I could give you names, there were a number of them who embraced me and mentored me through some really difficult times, even when I considered leaving practice. Uh, so, you know, I we have to look at that side too, and I'm not taking away from this discussion, but Honestly, in Colorado, I, I am proud to live in Colorado and to work with the veterinarians that I've worked with here, to know them, and to be a part of the Colorado State University College of Veterinary Medicine. And I think that's a good comment because I think considering that I've been at three universities, or if you consider one that I do some teaching at still, and I've been on Capitol Hill, the private practice veterinarians have accepted me extremely well as a specialist, have allowed me in their clinic, have called me back, and have treated me as a valued member. I have been a president of the state association in Pennsylvania, as well as being voted in by five states to the board of directors, knowing I can't hide who I am when the pictures go out and whatnot. So the veterinarians overall as a community are very welcoming, but once again, we have to let prospective veterinarians know that the community is welcoming. I think it's more of the academic institutions that are, I'm not even going to say that they are racist anymore. We'll go into details what that means. I think they're just less inviting Mm -hmm. and there are other opportunities and you still have to get through veterinary school. So it is expensive. And once again, I go back to, if I say I have a hundred thousand dollars, what can I do with $100,000, much less talking about two hundred dollars or $300,000 to go to veterinary school? That's just veterinary school. Sure, absolutely. There's so many factors. It's a very complex issue, and we can talk about a few, but they're very, this is a very complex issue for us. As I said earlier, I'm very supportive of the profession. I think, I think very highly of it's the greatest profession, and I think there are opportunities now. We just need to direct those students. We need to find them. And in some way, I really feel responsible, and I've done that actually here in Colorado where I can. I visit elementary schools. I don't talk about being a veterinarian. I talk about, I talk about other things. Um, I, t- I talk about values. I talk about other issues. But I, I model being a veterinarian or being someone in the community, and I think that's important too. So it's not that I'm out recruiting young people to be veterinarians, but I'm out being a a model to them and showing them that this too is available to you. So I think that part is important too. I don't like to emphasize the fact that I'm a veterinarian. And as you said, Michael, you know, that, that image that most people have, that, that movie that plays over and over about veterinarians saving animals, that's just not real anymore. 
and there are so many opportunities, and we need to be in our communities talking about those opportunities and not so much about taking care of dogs and cats or cattle. And, you know, I think that's where, that's what we need to do as African-American men. Right. And that's where veterinary medicine is making a mistake as a whole, not just attracting men of diversity. But by doing this, we can attract more men and we can attract more men of diversity by letting them know, hey, anything you want to do, veterinary medicine can be. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. So one point, thank you so much, Aubrey, for bringing that up. Progress really just does not happen without good allyship. It just doesn't, right? And so that's really important, an important point that you raised earlier. So thank you for that. It doesn't, progress doesn't happen without great allyship. So I've got one question for each of you before we wrap up. So Michael, I'm going to go with you first. Currently, there are just four deans who are people of color at the U.S. schools. Three of them are men. The fourth, of course, being Dean Perry at Tuskegee. What do we need to do? And I mean, then there's there's you on the board by yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Holding up the world. (laughs) What do we need to do? Our very own Black Panther, right? What do we need to do to cultivate more diversity in the leadership pipeline? Both kind of at, you know, at all three what, of it. What I am trying to do on the board of directors and I would like other people to emulate with an opportunity is to go out. You, you realize you identify what positions are open and say, hey, I've got an opportunity for you and sort of ask and tell at the same time. And what <laughs> I have done in several positions, which I have recently got filled, is I've given them three names for one position and figuring one of those three people, you're going to tell me that person's not up to, well, how about that one? Well, wait a minute, what about this one? So I try to to overwhelm them with good candidates. Okay. So lots of candidates that you voluntold that they're going to be. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. Voluntold. Yes. Got it. Got it. Okay. So, so Aubrey, you know, in terms of kind of, thinking about this this show and, and folks will be listening to it off into the future. As a man of color in veterinary medicine, what do you what is that takeaway that you want people to know? Well I think that, you know that's that's a long long answer actually and I don't know that I can do that. Uh, the takeaway for me is that again I really feel there's opportunities in the profession that we need to make available or that we need to inform at young African-American men about. I've visited high schools, I've visited elementary schools to do programs, and again, not to talk about veterinary medicine, but that model that I am a veterinarian and I am a leader in my community. And I think when we can look at that community focus and what we do, we talked about public health. I think really we're, we're at the vanguard of issues in, in climate health. The veterinary profession is ahead of the medical profession in so many areas. And we need to make young men of color aware of these opportunities. And that's what I can do. And so that's, that is what I do. And I don't know if I answered your question. I have to back up to say something, though, to Michael. And again, it's about Colorado. I had the honor in 2011 of being voted as the Colorado Veterinarian of the Year by the Colorado Veterinary Medical Association, right. which is really something. And I got a standing ovation at the ceremony. And I'm saying something about Again, Michael, and again, Steve, which you very well know, veterinarians are overwhelmingly embracing us 
as as men of color. And in fact, you know, I haven't seen that that's been an issue. The issue is what's happening at the academic level. And, and again, as Michael said, with the American Veterinary Medical Association, what are they doing? We can provide the resources to reach out, but how are they helping us? I think Steve and Michael and I can do a great deal to improve the image of veterinary medicine, but we need the back, we need the association backing us up and we need our colleges backing us up. So be visible. Visible yeah. and visible. Yes. Was that the short answer you wanted? <laughs> no, I'm, just a, I'm just a summary gal. That's all. <laughs> and so finally for Steve, what do you want? those high schoolers, middle school young men, those undergrads who are kind of going, you know, what am I going to do with my, the next, you know, I'm going to be in, I'm going to be a board certified. What am I going to do for the next 20 years while mm-hmm. I'm pursuing all of that? Yeah. What, what, what would you want to tell them? Yeah, what, what, I, what I would want to tell them having, having children, my own children that age is, well, what I would want to tell them is I'd love to tell them a really sunshiny, rosy story about how great veterinary medicine is and how inclusive it is and, and, and how wonderful your experience will be if you choose this path. What I will tell them is it's a wonderful job. It is a rewarding opportunity or a rewarding career, but you still have to have allyship. You have to have strong allyship and it needs to be strategic. You need, you, it's, a, it's about preparation and timing and opportunity. And if you don't have people in place like Mike Bailey, like Sue Highland, like Hilda, like people who are already in these strategic positions to build, because as, as many of those people that are out there there are still, I, every year I'll go give a talk somewhere and I'll have someone say something to me like, wow, you're really intelligent for a black veterinarian, <laughs> right? And I just have to say thank you. And that, and that exists. And it's not just in that one person. It exists in the minds of many people. So in order for us to make any kind of progress with this, we have to have people who are building us up. There he is faster <laughs> than that then those then that population is is knocking us down. So we really do need to have allyship, not just among the people on this panel, but among people who are already in those strategic positions. Great. Thank you so much. Yes. And so for our few viewers that are watching, my my dog Barkley, I'm recording from home. And my dog Barkley has just made an appearance with Hey Barkley. So so thank you all for being on the show and having this conversation. I want to point out that while all of you all are African American, this is just one slice. I think that we could replicate this conversation with our Latinx co- um, colleagues, with our Asian colleagues, our Pacific an Islander and Native American colleagues as well. This is just kind of one set of stories, but I think that there are probably many, many parallels across demographic groups. So I just want to thank you all for participating. This has been fun. Yeah. I'd like to say one thing before Absolutely. you close really quickly. You know, I really appreciate you. It's been an honor being a part of this panel. And Michael and Steve, I can't tell you how, how much I appreciate your comments. I've learned from you. I agree with everything you've said. And I've learned from you. So thank you very much. Same here. And I hope everybody realizes I've tried to talk and talk about people with diversity because I realize there's other people out there than just Mm African-Americans. And we all 
diversity is what makes us what we are as a country. Yes. 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 Thank you. Great points. So this is going to wrap for another episode of Diversity and Inclusion on Air. Thank you to my guests. I really appreciate you coming on and having um, this really vibrant conversation. If you are interested in learning more about the show, please scoot on over to aavmc.org. You can also find the podcast show on Facebook at AAVMC Diversity and Inclusion on Air. And you can also download the audio versions of the show on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, all of those great places, wherever you find podcast apps, you can find diversity and inclusion on air. And so with that, we will wrap the last live show of 2018. Again, thank you so much for participating. Barkley says goodbye. And we will see you in the new year. Thank you so much. Thank you. Goodbye. Take care. Thank you. Thank you.